Psalm 103, 1 through 22, of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. The word of the Lord. Well, this morning we're uh, finishing a series on prayer. And uh, we've been looking at the Psalms because the Psalms are famously known as the prayer book of the Bible, um, which means that if you want to know what prayer is, if you want to know how to do it, you need a teacher. Getting into the Psalms is like going to the school of prayer. And this morning, uh, the Psalm that we just read is rather unique, a unique one to end with. Uh, The heading says, of David, which means that it was written by David, the great king of Israel. Uh, But you'll notice it does not say, like so many other Psalms, a prayer of David because this is not technically a prayer. It's something else. What is it? One of the commentators I was reading as I studied this week puts it like this. He said, this psalm gives us the key for handling life. What do you think about that? In other words, um, no matter what you're going through, whether whether you're angry or afraid or anxious or worried or empty or discouraged or lost or lonely or whatever it is you're going through, this psalm gives us the key to handling that. Uh, Where do we see that? Um, It's actually right here in verse 2. It says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. 
And then David goes on and he lists all kinds of things, all kinds of benefits of God, things like forgiveness, uh, but also things like health and hope and affirmation and satisfaction. This is the basic stuff of life. David is saying that our biggest and our most basic problem in life is that we forget God. We forget who he is and what he's like and what he's done. Now, that maybe raises some questions with you. You may ask if you're a Christian, but what do you mean I forget God? I believe in God. How can I forget God? Or if you're not a Christian, if you're here this morning and you're exploring faith in Jesus, maybe you might be asking, how can the biggest problem of my life be that I'm forgetting something that I'm not even sure is really true? You see, this psalm is saying that our biggest problem is that we forget God and that our biggest need is to remember God. You know, those questions that we ask, those are great questions. And the answer is that what David is talking about in this psalm is way bigger than just intellectually knowing about something or having a mental activity about God. When he says, don't forget, that's another way of saying, remember. He's saying that the key to handling life's biggest problems, life's biggest challenges, whatever they are, the key, he says, is to remember God. But that's way more than just mentally knowing about God. What does it actually mean to remember God? Let's answer that question by breaking it into three parts, okay? We're going to see why we need to remember, how we need to remember, and what we need to remember, all right? Why, how, and what we need to remember, all right? First, why we need to remember God. If you were to do a word search on the words remember and don't forget in the Bible, you would come up with dozens of examples one of the most famous is from Deuteronomy chapter 6. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the story of uh, the Israelites, they've just spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness. God delivered them out of slavery in Egypt, and now they're about to enter the promised land. But before they enter the land, God has a little sit-down with them. Um, and that happens in Deuteronomy. You know what Deuteronomy is all about? Uh, the word itself, Deuteronomy, literally means second law. In other words, God already gave the Israelites his words, his law, all the way back in the book of Exodus. But now here he is in Deuteronomy, and he's giving it to them again. That means that the book of Deuteronomy, in many ways, is all about not forgetting. And so in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God says to the Israelites, I'm giving you my words again. I want you to teach them to your children. I want you to write them on the doorposts of your house. Bind them to your hands. Bind them to your foreheads. In other words, God is saying, remember me. I don't want you to forget. You're going to forget. I don't want you to forget me. And here are all the ways that I want you to give yourself help and aid in, in how to not forget me. Now, why would God go to so much trouble and effort trying to get the Israelites not to forget him? The answer is because they had already forgotten him numerous times. In fact, we're going to look at the book of Exodus uh, later this fall, so we'll go more in depth when we get there. But think about this. If you had seen what the Israelites had seen, would you forget it? Do you know what they saw? They saw God part the Red Sea. I mean, imagine that happened to you. Imagine you're being chased by thousands of Egyptian soldiers. You're running for your life. You get cornered at the edge of a sea. You can't go forward. You can't go backward. You know that you're about to die. And then all of a sudden, the waters part. You walk through on dry land. 
And then all the soldiers perish as they try to follow you. If you had seen that, would you forget it? They did. Not in the sense that they weren't like intellectually aware that it had happened, but in the sense that it ceased to be a controlling reality in their lives. It ceased to be a controlling reality in their lives because not just a few chapters later, they're already worshiping other gods. In other words, they forgot God. I've, you know, I've always read that story and I thought to myself, man, if I had seen what they had seen, if I would experienced what they'd experienced, I would not forget. And this story is here, God is here to say, not so fast, compadre. You know, why does God keep telling them to remember him? It's because if they forget, their life is going to fall apart. That means that Remembering God is a whole lot more than just being mentally or intellectually aware of God. To remember something is for it to be so real and so vivid to you that it actually changes the way you live. To remember something is for it to be so real and so vivid to you that it actually changes, it controls the way you live. In other words, to remember is for something to be the controlling reality of your life. The controlling reality. In other words, uh, have you ever had something happen to you in your past? Maybe awful things that were said to you or horrible things that were done to you. And, and no matter how long ago it was, those things, they still have power over you. They still control you. Why is that? Maybe there's hundreds of other really nice things that people have said and done for you, but it's that one bad thing that you remember. It, it shapes you. Why is that? It's because that is a controlling reality in your life. That means there's a kind of remembering that's more than just mentally knowing about something. When the Bible talks about remembering, it's talking about whatever is most real to you, most vivid to you. It's whatever has most captured your imagination, most captured your heart, most captured your focus. So it's kind of like, you know how when you take a picture on your smartphone? When you're taking the shot, whatever you want to focus on, you, you touch the screen and it puts a little frame around that object of focus, right? So that whatever you touched, that's what is going to be clear and in focus. Everything else in the boundaries and the periphery is going to be kind of blurry and out of focus. But whatever you put the focus on, that is what's going to be clear, crystal clear. We do the same thing in our lives. Our problem is that the things that are most in focus in our lives are, tend to be the bad things, the negative things, the anxious things, the troubling things. Why is that? It's, it's, it tends to be the bad things and the negative things. Those are the things that tend to be the controlling reality in our lives, not the good things. Why is that? Well, a big part of the answer is because of sin and its effects in our lives. And I know that that word sin has a lot of baggage associated with it in our culture. But one of the main results of sin in our lives is that it tends to make us focus more on the bad things, more on the negative things, and less on the good things. The good things are always cloudy, and the bad things are always crystal clear focus. In fact, Romans 1 actually helps us to understand this. Romans 1 uh, gives us a really good definition and understanding of what sin really is because it says that we all want to be our own Lord and Master. We basically want to be in control of our lives, which means that in order to do that, we have to kind of forget God. The way Romans 1 puts it is it says that we suppress the truth of God. We suppress the truth. In other words, we say to God or kind of half say to God because we're not really acknowledging when we're doing this, but we say, God, I know about you, but I don't want to know about you. I want to do what I want to do. 
but I can't do what I want to do if I'm thinking about you. So I'm going to try to forget about you right now because I want to do what I want to do. I want to be my own Lord and Master. The problem is when we do that, we can never really completely forget about God. And that sets up a real tension in our lives. I think I used this illustration a few months ago. When I was a kid, uh, we used to go to the pool. And one of my favorite things to do was take one of those inflatable beach balls and just try to hold it underneath the water. I would suppress the beach ball. And it was a real game to me because it's really hard to do that. Uh, The ball keeps wanting to constantly pop back up out of the water. That creates a tension. We do the same thing with God. We want to be in control of our lives. The essence of sin is that we want to be in control. Sin means that we focus the lens of our heart on something other than God. That means that anytime we make something, anything other than God, the controlling reality of our life, that's sin. But that creates tension in our life. Because we can never really completely forget about God. The reality of God is constantly suggesting itself to us, um, imposing itself upon us. It's constantly pressing down and exerting itself in our lives. So, for instance, why are the, the books and the music and the movies that we love the most, why are those things uh, so often about things that our naturalistic scientific world says don't really exist? Why are we constantly shelling out big bucks on movies and books that are all about a world beyond this world? Why is that? J.R.R. Tolkien, uh, the author of Lord of the Rings, he once wrote a little essay called On Fairy Stories, and he explained it like this. He said that there are longings that exist inside every human being that can never be satisfied in a world without God. And he said there are really four basic longings like this. Number one, he said, all human beings have a longing to escape time and death. Number two, he said, all human beings have a longing to communicate with non-human life forms. Think about all the movies that are about that. Number three, he said, all human beings have a longing for a love that never ends, a love without parting, an eternal love. Lastly, he said, every human being longs for the ultimate triumph of good over evil. We all long for the ultimate restoration of this world. Now, if there is no God, and this world is all there is, then all of those longings are literally a fantasy. They're illusions. They don't exist. They can't exist. And yet, as human beings, we can't escape those longings. We're constantly haunted by those things. Now, listen, if those things really are the truest index of reality then what we need more than anything else in the world is to be gripped and controlled and focused on that reality. Those longings are actually from God himself. They're ways that God is reaching into our lives and saying, don't forget, remember, remember me. I don't want you to forget me. The longings are there because God is actually reaching out to us. In other words, what would your life look like if instead of being focused on and controlled by all the bad things in this world and in your life, instead of being focused and controlled by those things, if you were focused on and controlled by the love and the power and the goodness and the beauty of God himself, if that was the controlling reality of your life, your life would be way different. Friends, that is why we need to remember. But secondly, how we need to remember. 
Because here's a question. If what we need most is for God to be the controlling reality of our life, then how does that actually happen? Well, where's the problem located? David tells us in the very first verse. In verse 1, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, you remember back at the beginning, we said this is not technically a prayer. David is not talking to God in this because God's not the source of the problem. What is? The, the problem we have is we forget. The place we forget is all that is within me. The place that we forget is the very innermost being, the very center of our being. It's our soul. It's our heart. That's where we forget. Therefore, what needs to happen is we need to find a way to take the reality of God and make that the controlling reality in the innermost parts of our being. So, for instance, look at how David does this. Right at the beginning, he's talking to his soul. Do you see that? Not talking to God. He takes his soul by the hand, as it were, and he says, come on, let's come with me. Let's go. Let's remember all the benefits, all the things that God has done for you. And then in verses 3 through 5, he starts walking through those things. He lists them out. He says, soul, remember what God did for you over here? Soul, remember what God has done for you over there? Remember these things. He takes these realities and he starts pressing them into his heart. Do you know what that is? This is something that we've already talked about a couple of times throughout this series, and we're going to talk about it again this morning because it's that important. This is meditation. Meditation is different than just Bible study. In Bible study, you're reading and studying the Scripture. You're learning about God. The focus is on God's Word. But it's not prayer either. In prayer, the focus is God. You're talking to God about who He is and what He's doing. Meditation is taking the truth, the reality about God, and then pressing that into your heart, applying it to your heart, applying it to your soul. It, it's actually kind of like taking medicine and applying it to a wound. And that's actually a really good way of thinking about what's going on here because what's happening in medicine, there are two parts to medicine. There's the diagnosis and the intervention. Two parts, diagnosis and intervention. So first, there's the diagnosis, and you see that here. Um, diagnosis means that you're, you're digging deep into your heart. You're actually digging deep into your emotions and your feelings and, and finding out what the real problem is. You have to ask yourself, hey, what's really going on here? So there's another really good example of this in the Psalms. In Psalm 42, in verse 5, that psalmist, he says to himself, why are you so cast down, my soul? Why are you so troubled within me? He's talking to his soul. And he says, not what's troubling you, but why is it troubling you? There's a difference between those two things. In other words, it's not just, you know, his grades or his money or his career or his family or his romantic relationships or, or his health or whatever might be the particular struggle. It's, it's something underneath those things. Why are those things troubling you? Listening to your emotions, listening to your feelings is going deeper underneath the surface issues. That means that we have to spend a rather lengthy amount of time listening and a rather um, lengthy amount of reflection on the things that go beneath the surface. There are issues beneath the issues. In fact, you know, this is one of the things that makes the Psalms so unique in our world because the Psalms actually give us a way of processing our emotions which is very unique. You know, for a lot of religions and a lot of religious people, the way to deal with emotions is avoid them. We suppress them. We don't deal with those things. We don't look at them. So for instance, there's a Broadway show called The Book of Mormon. It was actually just in town. 
Uh, it's about a group of Mormon missionaries. And at one point in the show, they sing a song about how to deal with emotions, and specifically those troubling, dark emotions. And the name of the song is Turn It Off. And here's how it goes. You say you got a problem? Well, that's no problem. It's super easy not to feel that way. When you start to get confused because of thoughts in your head, don't feel those feelings. Hold them in instead. Turn it off like a light switch. Just go click. It's a cool little Mormon trick. We do it all the time. When you're feeling certain feelings that just don't seem right, treat those pesky little feelings like a reading light and turn them off. Now, the dark irony of this song is that it's sung in a really lighthearted manner, like with a little tap song and dance. The, the dark irony is that, that they're talking about stuff that really is very troubling and very dark, the emotions that they deal with. In other words, the song is saying the religious approach to emotions, especially dark emotions, is to ignore them, it's to avoid them, it's to suppress them, it's to push them down, turn them off. Friends, the Bible does not do that. The Psalms do not do that. The Psalms are full of emotions, most often the most troubling emotions. And they say that unless you're listening really, really carefully to what's going on in the deepest recesses of your heart, you're never really going to find true freedom and healing for your life. But notice something else. That's just the diagnosis part. But diagnosis all by itself isn't going to really be enough. In other words, just listening to your emotions isn't really going to do the complete job. And that's one of the ways in which the Psalms are most countercultural in our world. Because it's not just religion. It's not just avoiding the emotions. It's not just suppressing the emotions. It's listening to them. But neither is it modern secular approach to our emotions. And the modern secular approach to emotions in the inner life, modern secularism says that truth, ultimate truth can only really be found inside of you. And that the truest, most authentic thing you can do is listen to what your heart is telling you because that's where truth is found. And not just listen to your emotions, you have to honor your feelings, cherish your feelings. Really, you have to bow down to those feelings because that's where truth is ultimately located. And you have to listen to that. The Psalms do not do either one of those things. Because if all you're doing is listening and bowing down to your emotions, what are you doing? You're making your emotions the controlling reality of your life. Now listen, you have to listen. You have to pay attention. Because what's going on is your emotions really are telling you something. But what they're telling you is they're giving you a distorted view of God. Because of sin, because we have a tendency to suppress the knowledge of God, to make something other than God the controlling reality of our lives, our emotions are telling us the truth about what our hearts are doing with God, but they're not necessarily telling us the truth about God. And there's a big difference between those two things. Listen, in meditation, you're doing diagnosis. You're listening to what your heart is telling you. You're paying attention to your feelings. But the most important things your emotions are telling you is what your heart is really doing with God. They're telling you, they're showing you the distorted reality that you've made the controlling reality of your life. So what that means is that meditation means diagnosis is not enough. Meditation means that once you've done the diagnosis, why is my soul so upset? Why am I anxious? Why am I afraid? Why am I lonely? Why am I bitter? Why am I angry? Once you've done some digging in there, then what you do is you take the truth about God and you start applying that medicine to the deepest parts of your heart in your life. 
Meditation means that you take your soul by the hand and you say, come, soul, let's go. Let's look at why you're angry. Let's look at why you're bitter. Let's look at why you're afraid. And now let's take the truth, the reality about God, and let's press that into our heart and make that the controlling reality of our life. And that leads to our last point. We've talked about why we need to remember. We've talked about how we need to remember. But lastly, we need to look at what we need to remember. Because what does this actually look like, in other words? You know, notice David does not say, remember that God is loving, or remember that God is powerful. You know, love and power, those are really wonderful things, but they're abstract concepts. And when you're anxious or lonely or afraid or bitter or discouraged or, or whatever's going on in your life, when you're struggling with really difficult things like that, is you can tell yourself, God loves me, but is that really going to change your heart? It's not going to really get to the core issues because the thing that you need most when that's happening in your life is not just to know that God loves you. You need to know how he loves you. How has God actually shown you his love? What does that actually look like concretely? For instance, I was talking about being a kid and going to the pool. Um, I remember when my brother and I were really young, I think maybe four and five years old, and we went to our neighbor's house to go to the pool. And we were standing there talking with our neighbors. And this was before my brother and I had learned to swim. And my brother snuck off and he actually got into the pool and he was waiting around in the shallow end. But then he got out of his depth and, and he started to drown because he couldn't swim yet. And he cried out. I have never seen my dad move so fast. He was in that pool before I knew what was going on. In fact, it kind of freaked me out. Not only just because I all of a sudden realized that my brother was drowning, but because of how quickly and how powerfully my dad moved to get into that pool to rescue my brother. And when I think about how my dad loves me and protects me and cares for me and my brother, I don't think about my dad's love in some abstract thing. I think about that. I think about how he's actually shown us his love concretely. It's a story. It's a narrative. It's something that actually happened. So look at what David does here. That's how David does this. He takes an actual story about historical events and he uses that to apply that to the problems in his heart. But it's very interesting what he does. He goes to the Exodus story and you can see that in verses 6 and 7. He starts talking about the Exodus story and Moses and God showing his ways to Moses. But in verse 8, he actually quotes from Exodus 34. Now, in Exodus 34, it's a story about how God appeared to Moses. Actually, all Moses saw was God's back. But he appeared to Moses and actually was making the reality of who he is known to Moses. And David quotes that in this psalm. In verse 8, he quotes Exodus 34 and says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Now, the baffling thing about this is that David doesn't quote the whole thing. Now, we don't see it right away because we're not as familiar with it as ancient people were, but anybody back in those days would have known how the rest of the quote goes because the rest of what God says there is, but I will by no means clear the guilty. Yes, I'm gracious and loving and compassionate, but I will no means clear the guilty. Everyone is going to get exactly what they deserve. So that's what God says in Exodus 34. The baffling thing is David seems to contradict it in this psalm. Because in the very next verse, in verse 9, David says, God will not always chide, nor keep his anger forever. And that word chide 
interesting word. It's a word that literally means that, um, to bring legal charges against someone. In other words, David is saying, yeah, we're guilty, but God is not going to bring charges against us. Now, how can that be? It sounds like a direct contradiction. In fact, David goes even further. In verse 10, he continues and he says, God does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. So here's the, the question. How can God say, I'm going to repay everyone for what they've done, but David says God is not going to repay everyone for what they have done? I mean, think about it. What have we done? When we suppress the knowledge of God, when we forget about God, when we want to do whatever we want to do, we're, we're, we're focusing our hearts on something else. We're making something other than God the controlling reality of our life. What are we doing? We're forgetting Him. We're ignoring Him. We're shutting Him out. We're casting Him out. We're cutting Him off. You know, how does it feel when someone ignores you or forgets you? It's one of the most painful things you can experience. That means that for us, if we forget God, the creator of the universe, who actually created us, if we ignore him, if we reject him, it's, it's one of the worst possible betrayals that we can possibly do. David is saying, God, um, we deserve to have God bring charges against us. He's saying we deserve for God to repay us according to what we have done. But the gospel says that God will not repay us according to what we have done. God is not going to bring charges against us. How can that be? In other words, sin is allowing something, anything other than God, to be the controlling reality in our life. But the gospel says that God is not going to let sin be the controlling reality of him with regards to us. How can that be? I mean, how, how can God repay us for what we've done? I mean, how would that look like? What would it really look like? I mean, what have we done? If we forget God, what's the appropriate response? For God to forget us. Or if we ignore God, what's an appropriate response? For God to ignore us. And understand something. That, you know, that's not God just being cantankerous or vindictive. That's actually an appropriate response because think about it. If we keep saying to God, leave me alone. I want to do what I want to do. Leave me alone. There comes a day when God justifiably and mercifully actually is going to say, okay, have it your way. Thy will be done. If that's what we really want is to be left alone, I don't think we really understand what it is we're really asking for. One of the most chilling examples I've ever seen of what that might actually be like is a video of something called the still face experiment. It's uh, actually a, a study that was done on the attachment and bonding that babies have with their mothers. And the video that I saw um, shows a baby with his mother. And you can tell that even though the baby doesn't know how to talk yet, they have a whole language that's all their own. All these little rituals and facial expressions and ways of communicating and interacting with one another. It's, it's really amazing. But at one point, the mother turns her face away, and then when she turns back to her child, her face just goes blank. No expression. And at first, the baby's just kind of confused. And you can see that he's trying to get his mother to engage with him again. He's like, almost as if he's saying, hey, come on, you know how this works? And he's going through the little rituals and the little games. Blank face, expressionless from the mother. And eventually the baby goes from being confused to 
agitated to alarmed and uh, eventually to complete panic and eventually to outright terror. He starts crying uncontrollably. I mean, it's horrible to watch. Now, eventually the mother, you know, she comes back to her baby and she comforts him. But think about this. There is nothing more terrifying than being utterly, completely, finally, and unspeakably ignored and forgotten. I mean, it's painful enough when a stranger does that to you, right? But the more someone means to you, the more their love means to you, the more their love impacts your life, the more painful it is when someone you love does it to you. Friends, don't you see? On the cross, Jesus Christ got a lot more, infinitely more, than a blank face from God the Father. Because on the cross, Jesus Christ was ultimately, finally, unspeakably ignored, rejected, cast out. He was, he was cut off. He was cast outside into ultimate, final darkness. He was rejected. Why? So that God would not have to repay us according to our sins. God repaid Jesus on the cross according to what we have done. Because on the cross, God made our sin the controlling reality of his relationship with Jesus so that God could make the righteousness of Jesus, the holiness and the love and the devotion and the obedience of Jesus so that he could make that the controlling reality of his relationship with us. Because on the cross... Jesus Christ, who always remembered God, he was forgotten in wrath so that we who are always forgetting God could be remembered in love. Friends, that's the gospel. The gospel is not a bunch of rules about how we must obey God and all the kinds of things that we have to do in order to get God to love and accept us. If it was, then God really would be repaying us according to what we have done. And friends, none of us would fare very well in that transaction. The gospel is good news. It's not rules about what we must do. It's news about what God has already done. And when we take that news, that story, and begin applying it to our lives, when we take that news, that story, and make that the controlling reality of our lives, that begins to bring real healing to all the different dislocations and struggles and hurt places of our lives. Because to remember the gospel is to make it the controlling reality of your life. And when the gospel is the controlling reality of your life, it brings healing and renewal and change to every area of your life. So for instance, really specifically, I'm just going to run through a few of these and then we're going to be done. Um, look at how David does this in verses 3 through 5. He's remembering the gospel. He's making it the controlling reality of his life. And then, and then he's bringing that reality to bear in all the various struggles of his life. So look at how he does this. He's saying, this is how the gospel changes this part of my life. Oh, and this is how the gospel changes that part of my life. So for instance, um, he talks to his heart. The first thing he says, what's the first benefit? God forgives your iniquity. Are you struggling this morning with feelings of guilt or shame? Are, are you burdened by things that you've done in the past? Are you struggling because you feel you know that you have a guilty record? Remember the gospel, that on the cross, Jesus Christ took your guilty record on himself in order to give you his perfect record. It's the gospel. You bring that, you, the more you make that the controlling reality of your life, the more that begins to melt away the guilt and the shame. Or for instance, um, are you struggling with... Um, with physical illness or ailments or afflictions? 
You know, the gospel is a lot more than just spiritual salvation from sin. It's a lot more than just our individual salvation narrative with God. The gospel is a holistic salvation. And you could see that because David says the next benefit, God heals your diseases. And it's not just physical diseases he's talking about. It's inner afflictions too, things like addiction or loneliness or depression or a thousand other ailments. So if you're struggling with those things, then what you need to do is remember the gospel. Fix your heart on Jesus on the cross. The prophet Isaiah said that on the cross, Jesus, what? He bore our sicknesses. He carried our diseases. He took those things upon himself in order to bring healing into our lives. Do you see how this works? No matter what you're going through in life, the gospel addresses it. The gospel heals it. So for instance, are you struggling this morning with fears about getting old and dying? If you're 25, probably not. If you're 45, 55, that starts to become a little bit more of a reality in your life. You think about, or are you struggling with hopelessness or feelings of despair, discouragement about the brokenness of, of this world and, and how really tragically broken this world is and how, you know, do you ever feel like there's no hope for your future? Friends, what does David say next? God redeems your life from the pit. You know what he's talking about? Remember the gospel. What happened? On the cross, Jesus went into the pit. He went into the grave in order to get us out. That means that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a foretaste, not just of the resurrection of our physical bodies, but of the whole world. The whole world is going to be renewed and restored. That means that you take that, you make that the controlling reality of your life. That's strong medicine for your fears. That's strong medicine for your hopelessness. Do you see how it works? One more. The last thing, um, are you struggling with feelings of insignificance or worthlessness? Do you ever feel like, like your life doesn't matter and that nobody really cares about you and why should I even care about myself? Verse 4, David says, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Remember the gospel. Jesus had a crown of glory, but on the throne, I mean on the cross, he lost his crown of glory and wore a crown of thorns. He wore a crown of shame and degradation and humiliation in order to crown you with affirmation and approval. Do you see how this works? The cross is the ultimate affirmation. The cross is the ultimate way that you can know your life matters. You matter to God. He loves you. You matter to him so much that he sent Jesus to die for you. Friends, the gospel is sweet, sweet medicine that you can take and apply to every struggle, every wound, every hurt, every sin in your life. It changes and transforms every single part of your life. It redeems your past. It strengthens you for today. It gives you hope for tomorrow. It changes every part of your life. That means that when you understand the gospel, the more you learn about it, the more you take that and make that the controlling reality of your life, the more you can take it and apply it to your heart and say, soul, come, come with me now. What, why are you so troubled? Why are you so anxious? Why are you so downcast? Remember God. Remember the gospel. Remember how he's made his love and his power and his healing and his renewal and his approval and his control and his security and his redemption, how he's made all of those things real to you through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Meditate on that. Apply that to your heart. As often as you're feeling those feelings, that's as often as we do this. The gospel becomes the controlling reality of your life. And when the gospel is the controlling reality of your life, it heals, renews, and changes every part of your life. Let's pray.